Hello, and welcome to the second episode of the OCSHP podcast, Adventure of the Orange County Society of Health Systems Pharmacists. I'm your host, Herman Johannesmeyer. I'm an assistant professor of pharmacy practice at the Marshall B. Ketchum University College of Pharmacy, and I'm also the president of the Orange County Society of Health Systems Pharmacists. And I will be uh, co-moderating this episode with Kayvon. Hello, uh, I'm Kayvon Musavi, uh, one of uh, Dr. Hannes Meyer's co-workers, also at MBKU College of Pharmacy, also an assistant professor. So happy to be here. And the purpose of the OCSHP podcast is to give clinical insight, go over the latest in research, and provide clinical pearls for practicing pharmacists. But in addition to that, the overall goal of the uh, podcast is to provide tips and tricks to pharmacy students, students that are very early on in their pharmacy career, to uh, to enhance the likelihood that they'll have a, a successful and filling professional career. And that's mostly who this podcast episode is aimed at and the uh, the name of this episode is so you want to do a residency tips for securing and completing a pharmacy residency um, and that's mostly what this episode is going to be about just because there's a, a tremendous interest in doing residencies among pharmacy students uh, regardless of what program you might be asking them you know from west coast to east coast there's a bunch of there's a lot of interest in pharmacy students wanting to do a residency uh, but Given that, there's going to be a lot of competition and some uh, points to put yourself from the large stack to the short stack in the application process, going from the application process to interviewing in the selection process, uh, but also some pitfalls that students might want to avoid. And then applicants might also be unaware of uh, the day-to-day -day activities of what residents do um, just on a daily basis over the course of their year or two of doing a residency. So the purpose of this specific episode is to highlight some of those things. Uh, uh, highlights and pitfalls during the application process and what goes into uh, doing a residency on a day-to-day -day basis. Um, but a bit of background information on on pharmacy residencies. There's a, a lot of different residencies out there. And Kayvon, do you want to talk about some of the, uh, the different programs that are out there that are available to, to students? Yeah, yeah, sure. Um, so again, we'll go into a little bit more detail when we talk to with our uh, our panelists, but it's like kind of a general overview, especially for those that are younger in your pharmacy school careers that may not know, you know, kind of what these words mean, what a residency even is. Um, so basically, um, just kind of big picture stuff is you're cramming a lot of experience into a short period. Okay, so I think general estimates and I'll ask our panelists later, kind of like if they think this is a fair estimate, generally about you know three to five years of experience within one year. So it's a lot of material, a lot of different clinical topics. You're just cramming a lot of stuff into a fairly short period. I mean, a year goes by pretty quickly. Typically broken down into postgraduate year one or beyond. So typically a PGY-1 is your first year and then a PGY-2 and potentially PGY-3, depending on how things change in the near future. So basically it's broken up into a year at a time. So that's usually how it works. And it's a little bit different with pharmacists compared to other providers like physicians where their programs may be multiple years. But typically for pharmacy, it's one year at a time. Usually, and I'm saying usually, not always, usually the PGY one year is kind of more like a general overview that has like kind of a somewhat of a specific focus on either inpatient or outpatient. However, there are some differences. Some first year programs may actually be pretty specialized and pretty niche. The PGY two year is generally where you start getting a little more niche and you start looking at kind of specific things. Um, for example, one of our panelists today is a critical care pharmacy resident. So she is focusing 
pretty much only on critical care during her entire year. So other rotations or other residencies besides critical care, infectious diseases, cardiology, oncology, there's a very extensive list of different PGY2 specialty programs that are available. So again, we'll go into a little more detail with our panelists into like kind of the nitty gritty day to day um, of kind of what a resident is doing. But in general, there's some similarities to your IPIs and APIs. So again, remember that's kind of like your early practice experiences versus your more late practice experiences when you're in school. Um, so you're going to have rotations. Typically, they're going to be somewhere in the order of four to six weeks. So you might be in the internal medicine unit for four to six weeks. Then you're going to be in the medical IC for four or six weeks. Then you're going to be in the general inpatient area for the same period and so on and so on. Also, you tend to have longitudinal responsibilities as well during your rotation year. That's typically going to be something like a research project, which is usually going to be a mandatory requirement for most residency programs. There could be staffing. Staffing is basically where you're required to work in a pharmacist type role. Um, again, we'll go into a little bit more detail on what that means a little bit later. So typically you're going to be doing a pretty full schedule. So I'd say it's 40 plus hours per week, generally going to be more depending on your rotation, depending on what's going on. Um, but it's a great way to get a lot of experience in a very short period. That's kind of like the big picture idea for what residencies are designed to do. Great. Thank you for that overview. Um, I appreciate you saying that in general, residencies are one year at a time. I, I think you know that I did a combined PGY1 and PGY2 at Texas Tech University Health Sciences Center. So in general, a year at a time, but there's a, there's always exceptions. But now let's go ahead and introduce some of the guest panelists that we're going to have during this episode. Um, some folks that you have probably heard from before if you listened to the first episode of this podcast, uh, but also some new names. Uh, so let's go ahead and meet our panelists. Um, and let's start off with Jen. Hi, thanks for having me here. Uh, my name is Jennifer Baggs, and uh, currently I am a clinical pharmacist and a PGY-1 residency coordinator at Banner University Medical Center, which is in Tucson, Arizona, Southern Arizona. And prior to that, I had been the PGY-1 residency director for our institution for the last five years. Uh, and I really enjoyed my uh, responsibilities and working with the residents in that capacity. Uh, I had been a former resident at the same institution at the University of Arizona. I did both my PGY-1 residencies and PGY-2 in nutrition support there, uh, and also graduated from the University of Arizona with my PharmD many years ago. So uh, happy to be here. Great, and thank you for bringing some additional uh, University of Arizona Wildcat pride into the podcast. People that are friends with me know that I... Uh, I exude U of A spirit, so it's good to have a, a kindred spirit on the call. Um, and then let's go to uh, Vitaly. Hi, my name is Vitaly Nikotenko, and thank you for having me back for our second podcast now uh, together. I am a clinical pharmacist in critical care at Stanford Healthcare in Stanford, California. I am also the PGY2 critical care uh, residency program director. I've been a clinical pharmacist here at Stanford for just about five years after graduating, and this is my second year as RPD in the critical care role. Great, thank you. And then let's move to Miranda. Hi, everyone. My name is Miranda Wong. I am a current PGY2 resident. I'm in critical care at Stanford Healthcare did my PGY-1 training at the University of California, San Francisco, UCSF, and got my PharmD at USC or University of Southern California down in LA. 
Great, thank you. So I think the first question that Kayvon and I have for all of you is why should pharmacists complete a residency in the first place? What would be the, the benefit of doing a residency for a, a new grad or a, a young practitioner? I wanted to complete a residency because I really wanted initially the breadth of experiences from my PGY-1. Um, and I also wanted to feel confident in my skills and be confident in all the recommendations I'm making. Um, I also specifically wanted to be an inpatient pharmacist. And I think just interacting with the teams um, and rounding every day was something I was really looking forward to uh, getting in my PGY-1 residency. Also wanted to um, get that experience precepting. So that was something I was really looking forward to during my first year residency. I'll echo a little bit of what Kayvon said in the introduction, as well as Miranda. It wasn't too long ago that I completed my PGY-1 and PGY-2 uh, residencies. Uh, this was in 2010 and 20, um, or sorry, 2014 and 2015. Wow, uh, it was a little bit of time ago. But um, to kind of echo what Kayvon started with, I, I really think a residency helps a, a graduate gain an incredible amount of knowledge uh, in a short period of time. And I think it also helps you gain a lot of confidence and independence in what you're going to do. I think in graduating from most pharmacy schools, I think we would agree that uh, a lot of the curriculum is really tailored towards making you a good clinical pharmacist or retail, or sorry, retail pharmacist, not necessarily a clinical pharmacist. And that additional experience within um, a teaching hospital or, uh, or any hospital for that matter, I think makes you a more competent clinical pharmacist. And kind of looking forward to what I wanted to do in the future, I think completing a residency made me more marketable to potential employers. Um, you know, I think it goes without saying that many hospitals and most academic medical centers uh, or teaching hospitals require residency training when you're applying for a clinical position. So I think a, a PGY-1 at least um, is very important to secure a job like that. I would definitely echo uh, what both Miranda and Vitaly have said already. I think the other aspect too is that the PharmD curriculum, although they allow one year of experience during the last year to uh, gain some more clinical experience during the API rotations that uh, you know, you're vying with a lot of students to get into rotations. And so you may not get a chance to experience a disease state or specialty area during that year. And if you don't do that, you may never get an opportunity to do that again. So residency training is really nice because it gives you an additional year to gain experience in some of those other specialty areas that you may not have been able to see when you were a student. Um, and I would definitely say from a marketability standpoint that um, you know, certain job markets, probably even particularly in California, that even getting staffing positions, not even clinical positions, that they, they're looking for residency trained people. Um, and as residency gains more popularity, it's, it's going to be even harder and harder to get a position uh, in a hospital without having done any residency training. So this might be more of a question for, uh, for Jenna Vitale. But uh, so basically, what is the, the purpose of each of your residency programs, like what what are you trying to get um, out of these programs for residents? I can speak um, from the PGY-1 residency perspective that we really want our residents to have kind of a well-rounded experience. Um, we want them to have the ability to practice in a variety of different clinical scenarios. 
Um, but in addition to that, uh, we know that pharmacists are constantly educating people, whether it's um, other physicians, whether it's nurses, whether it's patients. And so in addition to the uh, clinical aspect that we do have a teaching certificate program that we uh, enroll the residents in and they're able to get some additional experience in teaching and precepting. In addition to that, just working with the medical team, it really helps to strengthen a lot of their communication skills. Uh, and for those that are interested in research, that uh, most residency programs, including RPGY1, does require that the residents complete a research project. So it gives them uh, additional experience to get involved in research as well. So to follow up on that, uh, after completing a PGY-1 program, as Kayvon mentioned in the beginning of the show, um, you start having an opportunity to pursue a PGY-2 program, which is oftentimes a specialized residency program. From my perspective, as a PGY-2 RPD in critical care, um, our goal is really to build not only on the PharmD education that the uh, resident or candidate um, has, but also to build on the PGY-1 experience and the foundation that they got in order to then produce uh, an independent and capable practitioner who's specifically catering to the critically ill population. And so I think regardless of whether you're a PGY-1 or a PGY-2 program, we want you to feel very comfortable being uh, an effective member of a multidisciplinary uh, healthcare team. We want you to be able to educate uh, students, residents, practitioners, uh, patients, and family members about safe and effective medication use. We want you to continue to develop and have excellent written and verbal communication skills. And uh, while there are a majority uh, of time is spent on rotation blocks uh, with the longitudinal rotations and, and other requirements of the residency uh, also kind of uh, requires the resident to continue to develop their time management and problem-solving skills, and then ultimately to be a leader within the profession. We really start to look to our PGY-2s to start getting as close as possible to being really an independent practitioner. And so as they kind of transition from being a learner, we also want them to start transitioning into being a teacher, um, because as we'll probably get to later in the podcast, uh, after you graduate residency, it could be very shortly thereafter that then you find yourself really in a preceptor role, in a teaching role. And so we want to tailor our residency not only to become uh, a competent practitioner in the field of critical care, uh, but also to be able to then be ready to be a, a preceptor and a mentor as well for future residents. Thank you. And so my, my next question is a, a little bit of a combo question in that we, we've talked about some of the requirements for your residency program so far, uh, like block rotations, longitudinal rotations, and then uh, doing some sort of research project. Um, so my, my two questions are, are there any additional requirements for your residency programs? And two, have those requirements or, or daily activities changed at all since COVID-19 has, has come about? I would say in addition to the learning experiences, the block rotations that you mentioned, as well as the longitudinal rotations, that most residency programs do have some type of staffing requirement. And Kayvon, you did mention this earlier. Uh, and so I guess to elaborate, staffing is a little bit different based on every institution, but it generally is more operational based, where the residents are staffing on the weekends or sometimes at night. 
in more of an order verification mode or working in the IV room um, verifying IV admixtures. In addition to that, there's some additional uh, administrative responsibilities. Uh, we like the residents to get involved in our P&T committee, the Pharmacy and Therapeutics Committee, uh, working on drug monographs and seeing pharmacy from the administrative side. In addition to that, we certainly love our residents to be involved in residency recruitment annually because as people are looking towards different programs, they want to talk to the residents to know what exactly life is like as a resident. Um, they don't want to hear it necessarily from from the director sometimes. And in addition to that, we always try to get the residents involved in um, some health promotion activities as well. So there are ample opportunities for them to get involved in uh, brown bag activities, et cetera. Um, that certainly has been a little bit more challenging with COVID. But prior to that, that we were uh, there was a requirement that the residents get involved um, at least a couple times a year. Yeah, I definitely agree with a lot of what uh, Jennifer mentioned. I think that our residents are very important for the recruitment process. And one of the things outside of the standard rotations that you may get, whether they are blocks or longitudinal, are participations in the several major meetings that take place throughout the year that are now virtual due to the COVID-19 pandemic. So specifically the ASHP mid-year meeting and the residency showcase as well as specifically for our PGY2 critical care residents participation and attendance in the Society of Critical Care uh, Annual Congress. So both of those are affected this year, but additional requirements for completion of the program. In addition to the staffing requirement that Jennifer mentioned, we also have the resident complete a drug monograph, preferably for an ICU medication, if that is possible, and a medication use evaluation on behalf of the Pharmacy and Therapeutics Committee. And let's see. Yeah, I think that we've mentioned most of the other things that we have residents do. Is there anything that I'm leaving out, Miranda? No, I don't think so. Of course, staffing as PGY2 is more geared for me towards ICU staffing and ICU satellite, but similarly, it is operational in nature and order verification. Instead of P&T committee, I'm sitting on the critical care quality improvement committee, but I would say they're very parallel. All right. So next question is also a two-parter. And uh, Vitaly, you already mentioned part of this, um, but first off is... Are each of your programs, are they ASHP accredited? And the follow-up question is, what does that mean? Yeah, so I can speak to this because we actually underwent reaccreditation in 2019 and my first year as RPD, so lucky me. So both uh, our PGY-1 programs and our PGY-2 programs in critical care and HEMONC are accredited by the ASHP. And we received full accreditation for now what is the maximum of eight years allowed. So essentially what that means is for the program, we had to put together a large packet to present to folks from the ASHP that were then going to visit us on site. So some of the things that they wanted to look at are, what does your residency manual look like? What are the operations of your residency program like from the context of how do you recruit preceptors? How do you evaluate residents? How do you structure your rotations? How is feedback? given 
what does it take to graduate from a residency program, and a plethora of other things. In addition to speaking to members of the pharmacy department, they also like to interview the nursing staff, physician staff, and other members of the healthcare team that our pharmacists and residents interact with. And after visiting on site and having a two-day visit, they go back to ASHP and evaluate the program and give you feedback on things that you are fully competent in and on things that you could improve specifically in your program. And then you have some time to work on those things that need improvement or to show what your plans for rectifying some of those issues might be prior to them kind of giving you a final decision on what your residency's accreditation status will be. So, yeah, I think that that answers the question, right? Uh, yeah. And then, Jenna, what about your program? Yes. Yeah, so all of our programs, our PGY-1 and PGY-2 programs, are ASHP accredited. Uh, our PGY-1 program has been around for probably longer than most people in this podcast have been alive. So, you know, it takes a lot of work to maintain accreditation. I guess something that wasn't added um, in the questions is, is it okay to do a residency that is non-ASHP accredited? And you'll see these kind of pop up as you're looking for residency sometimes. And if you have any new program, any new program that starts is not going to be ASHP accredited. Fortunately, as the program continues to evolve, that they can apply for accreditation and they, the resident can retroactively gain a certificate saying that their residency was ASHP accredited. So there are pluses and minuses of doing a residency that is ASHP accredited. I would say most residency programs are ASHP accredited. And with that, you know that ASHP has thoroughly gone through policies and procedures for the residency program, and it's there to not only provide a good experience for the resident, but also to protect them and make sure that they're getting the appropriate feedback evaluations and they're working in a hospital that practices under best practices. But a new accredit or a non-accredited program um, may provide some additional opportunities as well that you would have to be very motivated because you're the first resident going through their program and they're really going to look for your, your practice to help them gain accreditation in the upcoming years. So our next question is, uh, if you don't mind answering at least, what is the salary and stipend for your residents? And then in addition to what's the, uh, what's the pay for the residents, what's the hour requirement like for those residents? How much time are they putting in on a weekly basis? So for our program, the Banner University Medical Center Tucson, their annual salary is $52,000 per year. And I would say that it varies widely across the country as far as what the annual salary is. It's nice to know what this is, but I think for the most part, most programs are going to pay residents enough to live on. So it's certainly something to to look at and compare, but I would argue that I would not use salary um, necessarily as a criteria for choosing a residency program. Yeah, and I can answer for both, I guess, my PGY-1 and PGY-2 program. As a PGY-2 at Stanford, my salary is about 81000 but for my first year at UCSF, it was about 56000 And I think PGY-1s at Stanford also make in the high 50000 or so. So this question might be a little bit more for uh, for Miranda because uh, you're currently in your residency. But is it possible to maintain a reasonable work-life balance during residency? Yeah, I absolutely think so. 
I would definitely say that organization via Google Calendar, Outlook Calendar, and having your task managers to meet deadlines is very important and always looking ahead has been very important. As a resident, you always have deadlines and you always have projects rolling in, but just making sure that you plan ahead has been very important. But overall, I think I'm still able to spend time on the weekends that I'm not staffing or on Fridays with co-residents to just take some time to unwind and take a break from residency. And I know it varies from uh, rotation to rotation, but what's like your general amount of hours spent working per week? Yeah, I, I agree. It definitely depends on what rotation it is. I would say typical rotation hours in the ICU for me have been start pre-rounding at 7 and patient care might end at 3.30 or 4, but afterwards I'm working on topic discussions or research projects or projects for longitudinal committees. So in the evenings, I definitely have a couple of hours, I would say anywhere from two to three hours outside of rotations that I'm working on things, sometimes more, sometimes less on deadlines. But I would say usually I would say 10, 11 hour day is probably an average residency day. So our next question is, what rotations and experiences are available to residents to help them achieve their residency goals at your programs? So for our PGY1 program, since this is supposed to be a general residency program, we have kind of a, a breakdown of either required rotation and then elective rotations. And so we have a 50-50 split where we have six months or six blocks of required rotations, and those are in internal medicine, nutrition support, critical care and drug information. And then the other six months, the residents are able to kind of choose which areas that they would like to do their rotations in. And we have a couple of ambulatory rotations that are available, cardiology, CTICU. We have a great emergency medicine department, pediatrics, oncology, transplant. We have our poison center here in the toxicology center at the University of Arizona College of Pharmacy. And so that is another opportunity for residents as well. So we tend to be a little bit more acute care focused. We don't have any required rotations in ambulatory care. It's something that we're looking to build upon in the future, but we just don't have the structure for that to be an established required rotation at the moment. Yeah, and for PGY2 critical care at Stanford, we have about eight required rotations that are mostly ICU focused, but also include emergency department and a project rotation. But I also get 12 weeks of elective rotation. So that's three to four electives in which I'm doing pediatric, cardiothoracic ICU, as well as nephrology and cardiology and infectious disease. Yeah, to add on to what Miranda said, it may depend on the program as well. But at Stanford, we're in a unique position to also have offsite rotations available. So the pediatric rotation that she alluded to is in a partnership with our next door neighbors at Lucille Packard Children's Hospital. But we also have elective rotations at other medical centers, namely UCSF Medical Center in their ICUs, as well as Santa Clara Valley Medical Center in their ICU, their emergency department, and their burn ICU not necessarily to repeat any type of ICU rotation, but to 
gain a little bit more of an appreciation of how ICU practice might be different from an academic medical center from one to another, what it might look like in a regional medical center or a community hospital, and to see how pharmacy practice might be different in those locations as well. So oh, next question is, so when residents are on their rotations, how are they evaluated and who is the one that's evaluating that resident? Yeah, I would say typically when I'm on a rotation, I have a primary preceptor who fills out my midpoint evaluation and also gives me formal feedback at the end of the rotation. But often preceptors switch out week to week. So they're often not only your primary preceptor, but other pharmacists who are providing you feedback. Also, as you work with different providers, such as nurse practitioners or different attendings, often they will provide some quick feedback at the end of the week or two that you work with them. So really everyone that you interface with provides feedback that is pretty normal, I would say, during residency, as they know you're still learning. Just to give a little bit of context for how that feedback is provided. So for accredited programs, and we talked about accreditation a little bit earlier, ASHP sets forth standards that have to be met, and they almost have a predetermined set of goals and objectives that residents need to meet. So for every specific rotation that a resident is on, we use an online platform called Farm Academic to help evaluate these goals and objectives that residents may meet or may not meet in any particular rotation. So maybe providing optimal critical care services might take place in a clinical rotation, whereas evaluation of a resident in their ability to put together a formal presentation, ask uh, salient questions, uh, receive feedback, might take place in a longitudinal evaluation looking at their teaching and precepting, for example. Outside of specific rotations where feedback is given, we also meet with our residents quarterly to update the resident development plan, which helps keep track of their progress towards meeting the program goals and objectives, but, but is also tailored to their clinical and professional interests. So we could reevaluate if we're still on track with wanting to take all of the elective rotations that have been chosen, if we need to move anything around, and so on and so forth. The only thing I would add is for the residents that in addition to the preceptors and the directors evaluating the residents, that the residents also get the opportunity to evaluate their preceptors and the learning experience as well. So it's kind of a two-way street where the residents are getting feedback, but we as preceptors are also getting feedback on our own precepting and our learning experiences. So let's imagine a scenario where a resident might be having a tough time on a block rotation. They might not be meeting those goals and objectives that they had originally set out for themselves. What assistance is offered to residents that might not be meeting those programs expectations? At our institution, you know, we work really hard with the preceptors and the residents to try to identify these issues early on. Sometimes it's a little bit difficult to do that early on in the residency year, but once we identify that a resident is struggling in a certain area, then we will sit down with a resident and kind of come up with an action plan and devise a, a way and a mechanism for us to focus on a certain area and really to identify why they're struggling and if there are other external forces or other issues going on that may be leading to their inability to meet in certain certain expectations. So that would kind of be the first step. And then at that point, we would likely be meeting with the residents on a more frequent basis or spending additional 
one-on-one time with them to make sure that, that they are staying on track to meet the residency goals for the rest of the year. Yeah, I think it really depends on the resident. Ideally, we want to start to strive for independence with a PGY2 resident. And so we tend to be a little bit more hands-off with them. But if a, if a resident is not meeting expectations, I think the most important thing for me as an RPD is to just figure out why expectations are not being met. So I can directly address a problem pertaining to a rotation's goals and objectives, if those are maybe too accelerated, too overwhelming, if it's maybe a scheduling issue that's causing poor performance, or if it's preceptor issues that directly are affecting the resident. If it's a personal issue affecting the resident, obviously I kind of would like to know about that as well. And part of the residency manual, right, we also have to build in policies for extenuating circumstances. So, you know, we do have a personal leave of absence policy if something like that is necessary. But at the end of the day, I really just tell our resident that I view them as my colleague and that the resident in turn is encouraged to view their preceptors in that light. And so for that reason, we don't assign a mentor to our resident. Some programs do do this as we feel that all of our staff is available and eager to serve in the mentor role for our resident. So we are there as support for them as much as they need us. Um, and we're also willing to be as hands-off as we need to be to allow them to feel that uh, independence. So just to uh, slightly switch gears a little bit and talk about um, a portion of the residency process that can create a lot of anxiety, which is the application process. So this might be a little bit uh, kind of more suited for, uh, for Jenna Vitale, but not exactly Miranda, feel free to, to jump in on this. But how are residents selected for each of your programs? Like, what are you, what are you looking for? So for a PGY1 program, it's, I would say every program is a little bit different in terms of what exactly they're looking for in a resident. And sometimes as a, a person that's looking for a residency as a student, it's a little bit challenging to really get at what exactly a program is looking for. There are certain things that, you know, you think of that you put on a CV, for example, that you know that they're going to be looking for. But it's, it's really kind of a combination of a lot of different things. We're not just looking for good grades. We're looking for work experience, clinical experience. We're looking at leadership experience. We're looking at research experience, community involvement, lots of different things. And so it's not just one thing. I would say, at least for us, we're really kind of looking for a little bit of everything in, in our residents. But the real challenge, what we're looking for is is a, a good fit, a personality fit. And those are the types of things that you're not necessarily going to identify on a CV that you're not really going to get at until you get into an interview setting with a candidate. And unfortunately, you know, you have, you talked in the beginning of the podcast about going from the big stack to the little stack. And it's, it's the things that are on your CV that are likely to get you to get your foot into the door. But Knowing that you want to do residency training early on can definitely be beneficial and really set you up to kind of put yourself in situations where you can work on becoming a better candidate and getting involved in a lot of different organizations and, you know, using your resources wisely, whether it's mentors, whether it's faculty, other students to get involved and to get additional information to make you a better candidate. Yeah, Jennifer really hit the nail on the head with a couple of points, and I just want to reiterate those because I think that as you hear it from more people, you start to realize that those are kind of the really important things. So 
a lot of times when we have a candidate come in for an interview, I like to tell them that on paper, you are good enough to be a resident here. So the second part of kind of that interview, and we'll get to it too, is more of the personality match. But every program is really going to want, for the most part, I would say a well-rounded resident. But what certain qualities they may value more than others is going to be very program specific. So I think that as an applicant, it's also important to remember that while you may think that your CV is complete, there may be certain things that programs look at significantly more than other things that you may have on your CV. And it's kind of like a relationship where it's like a, it's not you, it's me kind of thing. You also need to realize that it needs to be an appropriate match both ways for it to work out for the candidate and and the uh, the program. But specifically for us, if I'm going to talk about RPGY2 program and critical care, some of the requirements that we have in kind of the screening process and the selection process to make it to the interview are we want a resident who completed an ASHP accredited PGY1 program and we want a complete application submitted on the forecast platform. That's kind of a DOA if you do not follow those basic steps. So the initial screening process consists of a panel of core preceptors for our critical care program who then evaluate the applicants based on pharmacy school GPA, the quality of their PGY1 residency, their work experience, their critical care experience, their three letters of recommendation, their research, their leadership, and finally their letter of intent. So residents who screen well will then be offered an on-site interview during which we then evaluate specifically their communication, their critical thinking, their clinical skills, and their maturity. So that's where more of the personality match will come into play. So Vitaly, you touched on this a little bit, but what are the steps of your residency application process? Miranda just went through the process a few months ago, so this is a good opportunity for her to jump in and kind of give us her experience on what the total application process looked like. I would say it started off for me at showcases, getting an idea of which programs I was initially interested in, looking at their websites, looking at what rotations they offered, as well as longitudinal experiences and what unique experiences they had. Then I would say by December, I had my CV ready to go to turn in to Forecast. Forecast is a site where you basically upload what all your experiences and all your documents, including your CV, any letters of intent. It's this kind of a centralized portal that I had completed by December. And each program will have different deadlines, but I will say in general, most program deadlines for applications is late December to early January. So making sure you meet those deadlines are important. Some programs have supplemental applications in which they will have a prompt that they want you to answer. Some don't. Stanford's Critical Care PGY2 program does not. Letters of intent, too, also are submitted on forecasts. January to February, I would say, is typically when interviews are. And then you submit your rankings on a program that's linked to forecasts. It's the NMS site. And once you rank which programs you are interested in. And then match day is usually mid-March. So that's kind of the general timeline. Yeah, Miranda, thank you for uh, for summarizing that. So um, so yeah, that just really emphasizes this is a very uh, long, involved process. 
So for uh, for those that are considering applying, just keep that in mind. It's not something you can do, you know, in a couple hours. It takes, you know, weeks or months to get together. So it's a very extensive process that you have to go through. So I'm sure each of you have kind of already gone through the process of, you know, weeding out applicants, you know, like, like Herman said, moving things from one pile to a smaller pile. But what big things do you guys look for when you're when you're screening applications. So basically what differentiates these applicants from one another? Okay, so for specialty programs like RPGY2 and critical care, I find that so many of the residents that applied to our program are already really strong candidates. And so we do our best to start differentiating them by the screening process that I alluded to a little bit earlier. But I think one of the more salient takeaways is what what I find to be the candidate's personal plan or outlook on their career, right? At the end of the day, our goal is to train a critical care clinical pharmacist. So this is usually the where do you see yourself in three, five, or 10 years question. And sometimes that will be answered in their letter of intent, which we could pick up on the forecast application. Sometimes that will be answered during the interview. And so what we really look for in the interview then at that point is someone who is really enthusiastic, passionate about critical care and dedicated to becoming a critical care pharmacist specifically, not something that they want to try, something that we know they want to do. And and finally, we want to believe that their and our mutual investment in their training is going to align with that career goal that they see themselves in a critical care clinical pharmacist position. I would echo a lot of the same information we use a similar process where we have a screening tool where we look at a variety of different factors, certainly many of the same things like GPA, pharmacy work experience, publications and presentations, leadership, community service. Certainly uh, letters of recommendation are a big thing as a student or as a PGY1 who's applying for PGY2. You really want to have that self-awareness of who's going to write you a good letter. So, you know, asking people, can they provide you a strong, positive letter of recommendation, you know, is a good idea instead of just asking somebody, will you write write me a letter of recommendation? Because sure, they can always write you a letter, but you want them to write you a positive letter. And certainly the letter of intent. We read a lot of letters of intent and a lot of them sound very similar, but we really want to know that you are looking at our program for very specific reasons and that we are going to be a good fit for you. As you move through the interview process, I would say very similarly that we really want to make sure that your career goals align with the strains of our program. Being at an academic teaching institution, uh, we have a lot of opportunities for the residents get to get involved in precepting and teaching. And if you don't want to become a professor, that is great, but we certainly want to give you the opportunity to do that. Kind of the three big characteristics that people always ask me that I'm really looking for in a candidate are curiosity. It's one of those aspects that, you know, as a preceptor, we may not get around to completing every topic discussion at the end of every day, but we hope that you have enough curiosity that you'll go home and read about certain disease states, even without us telling you that you need to do that, that you're teachable. Uh, Obviously, you're doing residency for a reason. And so we really want to know that you're teachable, that you're coachable, and that you're, you're willing and ready to learn. And lastly, that you're hardworking. Anybody that's gone through residency will tell you that it's, it's definitely not a walk in the park, that the hours can be long sometimes. And so you're going to have to do things sometimes that you don't really want to do, but you just got to keep pushing through it. 
So have your programs taken any steps to promote diversity within your residency classes? And actually, Jen, I'm not certain how involved you are with this. I, I did always think it was kind of cool that the U of A did have a, an international pharmacy residency program. But if you are plugged into that, I'd, I'd love to hear a little bit more about it. Yeah, so I I had worked with a colleague of mine at the university who was primarily involved in this, but I did serve as the director of many of these international residents. But for a while, we were training pharmacists from other, other parts of the world. And so we had candidates that were from Thailand and Saudi Arabia. All of our candidates had essentially been pharmacists in their own countries and had come to the U.S. and had gotten the equivalent of a PharmD curriculum here. So they essentially went to pharmacy school twice and then applied for residency training. And so with that, we did get involved in a lot of diversity training and education, just because there are, you know, definitely different cultural aspects that we don't always take into account. You know, for example, if I'm doing something wrong, I would hope the resident would would call me out and say, hey, are you are you sure that's right? But you know, certainly in a lot of cultures, People aren't going to tell you if you're doing something wrong if you are their superior. So, you know, knowing certain things like that or, you know, different communication styles has definitely been beneficial. Uh, I think in addition to that, uh, being very closely involved with the University of Arizona, that uh, diversity and inclusion is definitely a, a hot topic. And the university offers a lot of different training programs that we are able to piggyback onto and, and get involved and, and listen into. So that's been great. Yeah, and I'll echo some of that. I think it's part of our fundamental training to go through cultural diversity training for all of our new employees. And it's also part of our annual training that we undergo as pharmacists or as employees of the Department of Pharmacy. And we uh, also welcome applicants from all over the United States in whatever way we can have an outreach to have the cast the broadest net, if you will, either via pharmacy residency showcases, open house, whether that be in person or virtual as it will be this year, by advertisement via the uh, the website that we have. We certainly strive for having a diverse number of PGY1 residents and a PGY2 resident if possible. All right, so just moving on to the next phase of the application process. So let's say all these applications are in, they've been screened. They say, again, you've moved things from one pile to a smaller pile and distributed interviews. So what's the uh, the interview day like for each of your programs? So I can speak for our PGY1 program here. I would say even before you get to the interview, there's probably a couple pitfalls that you would like to avoid. And I'm sure Miranda can probably speak to some of these as well. But in terms of applications, it's it's very common, I think, for students uh, and residents to apply to a lot of programs. And around that same time in January, you're going to be getting a lot of calls and emails asking you to come to on-site interviews. And so you have to be very careful in terms of committing to different interviews or canceling different interviews that, you know, you want to be cognizant of what your schedule is like, what your finances are like, and how many interviews that you're going to be able to sign up for. It's always very challenging being on the opposite side of the table to get a bunch of cancellations and have to call additional people back in to reschedule interviews. So that certainly is is something to avoid. And in terms of the interview itself, you know, you really want to try your best to not be late. You know, that is your first impression coming through the door. And I've 
experienced a handful of situations where people were late to interviews or just happened to not show up at all. And those are, are kind of some things that you, of course, don't want to happen, but really tried to do your best to not let that happen. In terms of the actual interview process itself for us, we have, it's kind of an abbreviated um, interview process where we have the candidates come in. Uh, initially, we will give them an overview of the program and get to meet some of our residency leadership. So our residency director, pharmacy director, residency coordinators, and then they um, get to meet a panel of our interviewers. And the panel consists of a variety of clinical pharmacists, leadership, some of our College of Pharmacy faculty as well, and some of our chief residents. And then after that, the candidates will get a chance to generally tour with our current residents and get an opportunity to ask some of our PGY1 residents questions. And then we'll wrap up in the afternoon with any final questions. I anticipate that this year we will likely be moving to virtual interviews. And so I suspect that the format is is likely to change a little bit, but the structure will be more or less the same. Yeah, I will say that in our view for PGY2 programs are roughly the same. At Stanford, my day started with a PowerPoint or an overview of the program and just the RPD and uh, ICU pharmacist giving us a welcome. Then since my afternoon happened to be in the morning, I started with a lunch with the preceptors where I would get to know the preceptors who I'd be working with as well as getting to know Vitaly or the RPD. Then I moved on to a panel portion in which it was both clinical and personality. And that would say, I would say maybe it was about a half hour, 45 minutes or so. And then I moved into a presentation um, as well as a Q&A afterwards. And then my day concluded with a tour with the outgoing PGY2 critical care resident um, and just some time to talk to the resident about his experience thus far and where he was going after his PGY2 and just some time to debrief with him about any other outstanding questions that I had. The only other thing I would add is that for candidates that are on site for interviews that you have to be aware that you are interviewing from the moment that you step on, on site to the moment that you leave. And I would say even before that, in the era of social media, that you want to ensure that your social media platforms don't have any controversial media on them. During the interview process itself, we've had a handful of candidates who would get to the section of the interview where they're talking with our current residents and they feel the need to be to say things that they probably wouldn't or shouldn't be saying in an interview setting. And you just have to know that a lot of these things are, are likely to come back to us, that our current residents are interviewing you as well. So if it's not something that you would say to the director, you maybe shouldn't be saying it to one of the residents also. So looking at this from the applicant side, what are some things that applicants should consider when they're ranking the programs that they've applied to? Yeah, so I think when ranking programs, the questions I asked myself was, can I imagine working alongside the preceptors that I met during my interview? Are the residents who came out of the program in positions or doing things that you are striving for? I also wanted to know, is the RPD someone that I think is advocating for their residents as a learner? Also looking at overall the rotations and the quality of the re residency, I looked at are those rotations robust and at the end of the year, am I going to feel like this year that I'm investing was worth all of the time and hard work 
that I'm going to be putting into it. Yeah. And so let's say everything, uh, you know, goes great. You match to um, a program that was on your on your rank list. How do you get ready? Like, what do you do to prepare for the, the upcoming residency year? Yeah. So match day for the past two match days, I guess the RPD kind of emailed me a welcome and has sent me onboarding documents. But also just if you're moving to a new place, I think getting in contact with the outgoing residents is helpful just so they can help you with moving, any other odd ends that you need to get settled it has been helpful. Also talking to the residency program director via email just to make sure you get onboarded correctly, that you're ready to go on day one, that you do all your HR things, I think is very important. And I think if you are going directly from PGY1 to PGY2, making sure you get a couple of days in between to just take a break and transition yourself for a new residency program is important. I would also kind of like to add that if you are a PGY1 who's moving to another state for a PGY2, start considering and working on those licensure requirements early, as early as possible, so that you can be a licensed pharmacist because most of or the best experience that you're going to get is by being a hands-on pharmacist. I think other things to start thinking about are what election uh, elective rotations you may want to take and specifically in what order, especially if you're a PGY-1 who's considering a PGY-2 and your PGY-1 has a variety of rotations for you to take, maybe front load the first half of your year with rotations that then you could speak to your experience about when you are in that interview in February prior to the match. If you're going into a PGY2, that may not be as important. Other things to kind of contemplate prior to starting your residency is think about what residency projects you may want to complete. Now, if you're going into like a specialized residency, you may start to already have ideas about, well, it's not just critical care that I'm interested, in, but I'm specifically interested in neurocritical care or surgical critical care. But if you're a PGY1, start thinking about what kind of things pique your interest. Are you interested in ID? Are you interested in heme-onc? Are you interested in crit care possibly? See if you could start to align some of your thoughts and ideas for what your research project might look like when you start on day one. Can one of you describe what a, a typical day for a resident looks like at your institutions? I can talk about what my typical day looks like on an IC rotation. Um, I will say the typical pharmacist hours are 7 to 3.30, but as a resident, I'm probably waking up around 5.30 or so, getting into the office between anywhere from 6.40 to 7 o'clock, uh, pre-rounding on the patients, which means I'm looking at all the patients who my team will be rounding on for the day, looking for drug-drug interactions, looking for medications that can be renally adjusted, opportunities to start new medications or discontinue duplicates are kind of the things that I'm looking at when I'm pre-rounding. I then meet up with my team around 8 a.m. or so and rounds, depending on the patient load, typically last until noon or so. I'll then grab a quick lunch and then often the afternoon is for wrapping up patient care, but also for learning. So sometimes in the afternoons, there are grand rounds or lectures that residents get to tune into or even hold. Often I meet up with my preceptor to review patients, to review topic discussions, um, to tune into journal clubs that other residents are holding, 
or to lead journal clubs. And then also just finishing up patient notes, for example, for vancomycin or for warfarin or ordering TPN in the afternoon. And then as I kind of alluded to after rotations, the day doesn't end with rotations. Often there are projects that I have to work on as it pertains to research or longitudinal projects. But I will either work on that in the office or go home and continue to work on that for a couple of hours afterwards. So Jen, this question is probably more for you since um, you know, you're representing a PG1, PGY1 program that has multiple residents. But does your program have a chief resident? And if they do, what is that person's role? We do, yes. Yeah. So we have two chief residents at um, our institution here. And really their role is to be an intermediary between our current residency class and residency leadership. We do have a requirement that our chief residents are our current PGY2 residents. We generally like to have one of our PGY2 residents be a resident that also did their PGY1 residence residency here as well, but they collect information from the residents on a, a monthly basis as far as feedback goes that needs to be brought to our residency advisory committee meeting. They disseminate information from our residency advisory committee group back to the residents. They're involved in weekly communication, disseminate information as far as what journal clubs are going on, topic discussions, any formal presentations, and also making sure that everybody is on board with the rotation schedules as they change monthly for the residents. So it's a lot of kind of administrative types of activities and really kind of an informal mentor for our PGY1 residents as well. And then one last question for you all. So let's imagine there's a pharmacist who has been working out in the field for a couple of years, but now they're thinking about a career change and, and looking at doing a residency as kind of a catalyst to make that career change happen. Would you have any specific advice for that pharmacist to enhance their application um, and better compete with students that are just coming right out of graduation? It certainly is a challenge, and, and I would commend anybody that you know, has the audacity to go from working as a, a pharmacist to go back to doing a residency. I think the challenge is that you are competing with people that are fresh out of pharmacy school and have been heavily involved and had uh, the ability at their fingertips to get involved in various organizations and projects and things like that. So I would say for anybody that's, you know, currently a pharmacist, getting involved in some of those leadership type activities at their own institution can be beneficial, whether that's involved in reviewing protocols, getting involved in the P&T committee meeting, certainly helping to precept residents, that those can all contribute to your application. Certainly getting involved in a variety of different professional organizations can help, whether that's ASHP, ACCP, or some of the other specialty organizations like SCCM can certainly help as well. I think to add on to that, it's showing the desire to want to be a resident, right? So some of it kind of reverts to the things that we talked about that we look for maybe in the screening process and maybe in the interview process. So you can't necessarily go back to pharmacy school and redo your GPA, right? But you can take take part in organizations as um, as Jennifer talked about, but you can also try to continue to be a learner. So evaluating kind of the newer literature that's coming out, evaluate what practice is like in the in the clinical role or in the role that you are envisioning taking on after completing a residency and setting yourself up 
to be a learner in that capacity so that the residency then is then the segue to get you to eventually where you want to go in this career change. I think that that's one really important thing to consider is not every residency is the same, right? And residency is just one year of your career or two years of your career, but it is the foundation and uh, the baby steps, if you will, to getting you on the path to where you envision yourself as a pharmacist. So if there's a certain type of job that you're looking for, let's say you really want to become a transplant pharmacist, well, what kind of things do I need to do to then be a good candidate for a residency that will prepare me for transplant? And you try to work your way backwards to then being a good candidate or applicant for that program. Yeah, and then just uh, one final question for me, but how does life change after you finish your residency or years of residency? What's it like going from, you know, being that, you know, resident to being like that full-time practicing pharmacist? I think the sheer amount of responsibility that you have, the moment, the day that you are not a resident anymore becomes very apparent when you are the person that's verifying the orders and there isn't anybody over you reviewing your work and just having that ultimate responsibility is something that we want our residents to get at the end of their residency year, but you don't quite feel it until you're out of residency. You know, certainly I think you go through this period where you're trying to regain all the sleep that you probably lost during your last residency year and then uh, eventually come back around and realize that, you know, ultimately it's been great and you want to give back and become a preceptor and to help the residents in the same capacity that your preceptors helped you. And so really learning how to navigate that work-life balance, continuing to force yourself to be motivated to learn and continue to review primary literature when you're not being mandated to do journal clubs and topic discussions and things like that is something else to, to take into consideration as well. Absolutely agree. I think a couple of things that I'll also add to that is uh, as a practicing, as a new practicing pharmacist, you realize that your job or day-to-day -day requirements now no longer change from block to block, right? I think as students taking their IPPs, their APPs, and as a PGY1 and PGY2, you get very accustomed to on a four-week basis or five-week basis, essentially changing your entire environment and your learning. You know, what is going to be asked of me? What kind of role do I play? in this team, on this rotation, what will I have to do? That really doesn't change anymore when you start becoming a full-time practitioner. And I think you also start getting accustomed to a little bit of a routine. This is important, uh, an important time for all new practitioners to realize that, you know, as we mentioned, you have to then start becoming a self-starter and realizing that no one is going to make you do anything and no one is going to make you prepare a topic discussion or read the new guideline or discuss the new journal. It's going to be up to you to continue being that uh, lifelong learner that we you know, pledged we would be when we started pharmacy school. And you know, projects can last longer than a year. We also get used to you know, doing a residency research project or working with a committee for a year, but as a practitioner, you can definitely delve into things that can be even more longitudinal in nature. And I think that could really be uh, fruitful and beneficial. And, you know, also, as, as we mentioned earlier, I think you can find yourself being a mentor, a teacher and a preceptor sooner than you think. So really the roles um, change quite rapidly. And especially if you are fortunate enough to get hired 
at a hospital or an institution that also has a residency program, you kind of go from being that role of learner to then being the role of teacher. And that can literally happen overnight as you accept the new position. So be prepared to start to give back. The only other thing I would add is that um, those that have gone through residency programs, they are highly motivated people. And as you get further out in your career, that you certainly run the risk of pharmacy burnout. And so uh, being aware of that and kind of some of the signs of that is, is certainly important in making sure that you have a long, fulfilling and lasting career. Great. Well, I think that rounds out all the questions from Kayvon and I. So thank you all very much for your time. We we really, really appreciate your input. And in, uh, in, so thank you on behalf of the entire Orange County Society of Health Systems Pharmacists. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, guys. I'd also like to thank a couple of my mentors, because as I mentioned earlier, you know, becoming an RPD kind of happened maybe sooner than I anticipated as a relatively new practitioner five years after completing uh, my residency. But certainly my mentors went uh, a long way. One of those mentors being uh, Kayvon Musavi, who uh, actually wrote one of my letters of reference for my PGY2 critical care residency program. But um, my professor, Jeffrey Gonzalez at University of Maryland uh, School of Pharmacy, Dr. John Lewin at Johns Hopkins Hospital and Patricia Ross at Johns Hopkins Hospital. Yeah, you're welcome, man. <laughs> Just keep paying it forward. <laughs>